got my Irish whiskey, I'm ready to go. Welcome. Well, today you're on the couch with Henry Jennings, and I'm lucky enough to have Marcus Padley on the couch with me today. It's going to be a quick-fire 20-questions format, and we're going to try and limit the questions to one minute per question and not get involved in too much waffle as a result. So if you have any questions... We're, we like, we're, the, we're the kings of waffle. We are the kings of waffle. But if you have uh, any questions, please email me at the usual address, henry at marcustoday.com.au, and we will attempt to answer them in these podcasts. Um, and we're also going to put a link on our website. So you can, of course, ask us any questions anytime you like, as you do already. We've left all your names off these questions, so it's all completely anonymous. So uh, ask away. But as I say, it's going to be quick fire. So I'm going to start with some questions for Marcus, and I'm going to limit you to one minute, Marcus. If you go over that, you'll get gonged. Um, So first question, number one, we have had a lot of questions about the oil price and getting set just in case the oil price rockets up. What's the best way to play the oil price, do you think? Well, we've obviously seen the oil price rocket up. Uh, we're talking on Friday, 3rd of April. Uh, oil price was up 24% overnight, although it seems to have fallen over today. And the obvious way to get set is uh, you, you might think about the oil price. There are some ETFs over the oil price, for instance. But commodity prices move a lot less than the underlying equities. Equities are like a commodity price proxy, and they tend to give you much better bang for the buck. So if you wanted to play, play with the big stocks, and the uh, sector, energy sector, has been terrible performer in this coronavirus worry because of the economic, global economic fears. Uh, consequently, just stick with the big ones. The biggest fallers have been Santos, Origin, Woodside, Beach Petroleum. Uh, there's another one in there I've forgotten. And the obvious one, if you want a sort of benign proxy, is BHP. And all of those uh, will come back when the oil price comes back and will also be a sentiment proxy for the virus because the virus is affecting global economic growth. If virus sentiment improves, global economic growth improves, energy sector goes up more. So as the market recovers, the energy sector will outperform and uh, vice versa. So it's quite a good play if you think the market's bottom. Okay, next. Is there a possibility that the ASX will close financial markets? No, I don't think so. The Italian market stayed open the whole time. US market stayed open the whole time. And I think people have got a bit confused because the New York Stock Exchange floor, yeah. uh, rather than the computer, they've talked about shutting that. And that's a social distancing thing because that's open outcry. There are uh, people running around right next to each other. And I think the uh, New York Stock Exchange has been wanting to close that for uh, forever, but it's a good marketing tool for for New York uh, so they keep it open. So no, the, the stock market will uh, stay open. Plus, with these government incentives to access your super early, you can't access your super if you can't sell. So the liquidity in the stock market is an essential part of uh, this whole stimulus thing. Uh, no, I don't think they'll close it. Excellent. Uh, question three. We've had a few questions about this one as well. So um, it's certainly one that I've had a couple of emails about. If individuals are able to access their super early, Will that create selling pressure in the market? Uh, the idea is that people can take uh, $20,000 out of their super early. If you, the government expects something like 1.3 million people to do that. If 1.3 million took out $20,000 prematurely, that's $26 billion. Uh, the market size of the market is what? Two point something trillion dollars. It's a drop in the ocean. It might impact the market for a day or two. 
but no, it's not going to create a lot of selling pressure, that particular measure on its own. Question four, we've seen extreme volatility. We've seen volatility to the max, especially uh, on some of the match outs that I, I watch, which has been extraordinary. Is the ASX and ASIC doing anything about this volatility? And, and how can retail investors have any kind of confidence whatsoever in the market if it just becomes a casino of day traders and algorithmic program computers running wild? I don't think they're going to do anything about it. They might have a look at it. ASIC had a really good look at high frequency trading in 2015. And its general conclusion is that it didn't upset the integrity of the market and prices and didn't push up prices, which was the main concern or didn't widen spreads. And I don't think they'll do anything about this volatility. This is an extreme period of volatility. The US market, the Dow Jones, for instance, is trading in a range in the GFC, in the volatility of the GFC, uh, the Dow Jones was trading 680 points from top to bottom in its range in a day. Uh, as of last night, the Dow Jones was tra trading in a range of 1,429 points a day, having peaked at 1,759 points a day. That is extraordinary volatility, twice over twice the volatility, mind you, the market's high of the GFC. So we are in extraordinary times. I think this is an extraordinary time in the market. This is not a time to go on a witch hunt for who's causing the volatility. Coronavirus is causing the volatility. Uh, the good thing is, I think that the market volatility appears to have peaked and that is a very good sign because if we're supposed to buy when others are fearful, well, now is probably the moment. Uh, no, I don't think ASIC and ASX are, are going to do anything about it. Um, and I, I think for a uh, an investor, for our members, just don't worry about it. But long term, it's going to die down. The volatility will die down again. If, the, if there are computer trades happening in the market, pushing the herd around much more easily at the moment because the, the herd is just no idea where it's supposed to go. Um, that will change over time as well. So I would say, no, uh, this is not the time to go on a witch hunt. Next question, Henry. What made you and the team go into such a heavy cash position at the beginning of all this trouble? And probably more importantly as well, and it's certainly controversial, is what was the reasons behind buying back in and going all in, which is quite an aggressive move in a very volatile market? Yes, aggressive stuff, Henry. Uh, I got, I've been accused of being a trader now because of this, or Marcus today has, uh, and I've been told off for bragging about getting this right. But the truth of the matter is we were, we were onto the market. We were suspicious or cautious about the market from last year, which is why we went to 100% cash when the trade uh, talks were deteriorating very rapidly. And then, and then suddenly they turned and we, and we went to 100% cash, not because of the trade talks, but because we saw an overpriced market and we saw the technical sell signals. Corrections start fast. And there were a couple of days last year in September, uh, well, over a period of a week, actually, where the market precipitously started dropping. And we thought, this is it. This is the start of the correction that uh, was necessary to bring prices down. You had 
$27 trillion, trillion, $27 trillion of companies in the US. That's the S&P 500 market capitalization trading at 23 and a half times. If you were to offer 23 and a half times last year's profit number to any person running a private business, they will absolutely smash you in the rush to accept your offer for their business. And yet here is $27 trillion worth of stocks trading at that price. That seemed overpriced. And it had been promoted by a president who clearly saw the S&P 500 as a barometer of his success. uh, And he was driving that on confidence rather than competence. And there were other flags, but a combination of uh, price and technical reasons made us go to 100% cash too early. We had to get back in. We suffered some mild underperformance but remained suspicious about the market. So when uh, I was surprised coronavirus didn't have more of an impact earlier in the year, then suddenly one day we decided to wake up and worry about it. And the market gave us all those precipitous technical signals again. And we thought, finally, this is it. Uh, and out we came again, knowing we could go back in again if, if we got it wrong. Out we came and we were 40% cash in a day, 70% cash in three days. And we sat there and have outperformed because of that. Uh, decision. Very few funds are capable of going to cash. Uh, We do have the mandate to go to 100% cash if we want to. We went to 70%. If we hadn't made the mistake last year, we would have gone to 100%, but we got cautious about it. Uh, At this time in the market, it is not about stock picking. It is not about fundamental analysis. The fundamentals are all over the place anyway. Nobody knows what the earnings numbers are at the moment. And on that basis, you start trading market sentiment rather than trading stocks. And the asset allocation decision became all important to us. And then the the sell-off was precipitous. And we three or four times on the back of bounces said, no, we're not going back in. No, we're not going back in. And then over a period of three or four or five days, you saw some really stronger technical bottoming signals, included the Italian market bottoming, the Dow Jones bottoming, the VIX index Uh, topping out the uh, Australian dollar bottoming, which is a a bit of a barometer of this whole episode, and uh, the US dollar topping out, bonds, bond yields topping out, bonds topping out, bond yields starting to rise. There were all these indicators suggesting this is a more significant low. We played the asset allocation decision, just went all back in. On the understanding, we'll get get out again if we have to, but uh, this is not a time. Well, well, that that brings me actually fortuitously um, to my next question. Uh, and remember, we've only got a minute. This is the quick fire round, not. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. That's Henry, okay. That's okay. Oh, I could tell when you were on a roll. Um, <laughs> but um, we're now into the 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 other question. Of course, is that what signal would you see, use, or take as the signal to to get back out of the market or reduce the risk? I mean, what what out there is is the the signal for you now? A negative shock is how I describe it, which is something happening that we're not expecting. At the moment, the headlines are very mixed. There are some terrible headlines, some great headlines. Every morning, uh, there's so much input. It's it's just incredible at the moment. Uh, but if things start to unfold the way uh, the maths suggests it should unfold with these exponential case curves, which appear to be plateaued out in China and South Korea and uh, look like they might do the same in the UK, the US, which is what we're watching. Uh, uh, Australia doesn't really matter. Uh, but Italy uh, uh, in, in particular is a bit of a lead indicator. If those exponential curves start topping out, the market is fine. Uh, we've hit the bottom. If everything carries on as it's carrying on at the moment, we will stay in the market. 
Then we have to worry about, does a financial crisis occur? The longer this stretches out, the more likely that is. But if it's going to end fairly quickly, we've already seen the bottom. Uh, if a financial crisis develops, then we might start thinking about getting out. When it's that, that issue starts to develop, you'll see the market will go precipitous again, and we will be very quick to make uh, asset alloc- allocation decisions. We're being paid to make decisions that our investors are slow to do, not experienced enough to do, don't want to do, can't do. We have to make decisions, and it's paid off extremely well. Uh, and these are extraordinary times. We're not usually this short term. We're not usually trading like this. We're not usually all in, all out and worrying about asset allocation. But at this point in the market, we have to. That's what people expect us to do. That's what we'll do. And uh, for the moment we're in, if if news flow continues as it is, we will stay in. It will take negative shock. That'll be a mutated virus. Chinese cases ripping up. U.S. continuing to go exponential and not flattening out. Something like that. And we will see it in the market and we will be out again. But for right. the moment, still in. Excellent. Um, this is going to be a shorter answer. Um, yes, yeah, sorry. Waffly. One would hope. Um, so when we when you do go to cash, when your 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 real money funds go to cash and you enter or or exit the market going to cash, at what market price do you use? Do you sit on the bid or do you sit on the offer or do you put limits on? How how do you manage the order flow? So uh, that that should be a quicker answer with luck. Uh, <laughs> if you're lucky, I could stretch it out if you like. Yeah, well. uh, <laughs> the uh, our execution on our funds is actually done by the platform that we operate the fund off. So we don't really have any control, but they have a, a parameters they have to use surrounded around VWAP. So we just let leave the execution up to them. But if an individual investor was wondering, do I hit the bid or do I sit on the bid waiting to for the market to come to me? Just take the price. As long as the spread isn't too big, you check that from your Comsec screen or whatever. As long as the, the, the spread isn't too big, but if the spread's normal, I just hit the bid or hit the offer, depending on which way I wouldn't be hanging around on, on uh, ceremony at this point in time. Excellent answer. Now, we live in a, in a strange, brave new world, of course, of, of zero interest rates, negative interest rates in some cases. What what effect do interest rates have? And are they really just a pointless exercise from the RBA and other central banks around the world? Or is there some point to uh, cutting rates to uh, such extraordinary low levels? From a business confidence and consumer confidence point of view, uh, the headline cuts are now, I think, unhelpful. There was a time, it was started by Paul Volcker back in the uh, 70s, 80s, that you had to raise inflation to get raise interest rates, get on top of inflation. And in order to stimulate the economy, you cut interest rates. Uh, There there is no stimulus effect now cutting from 0.75 to 0.5. Who cares? Uh, Cutting to 0.25. Who cares? And uh, the the RBA know that and uh, the politicians know that as well, uh, but they have to be seen to do what they have to do. I think that we've hit an inflection point now with interest rates so close to zero that cutting interest rates actually passes the wrong message. If it's going to have a sentimental effect, it doesn't boost confidence at all. It destroys confidence. It's hollowing out the return, risk-free return that retirees are getting and it's upsetting people. And it's passing a, a confusing, rather nasty message to business, which stops them spending rather than encouraging them to spend. Gone are the days where, the, where uh, everybody had debt and uh, the, it was helpful. It may be helpful to the housing market and to people in investment properties, but a lot of retirees these days with over $2 trillion in super who would like to see interest rates higher. So it passes the wrong message. It is futile. I've heard a politician at lunch 
tell me it's futile. The RBA know it's futile, but they have to do what they want to do. Okay, well, I've often thought the RBA has been futile for a long time, seeing as the banks don't even have to follow them anymore. But um, they seem to have proved a little bit useful in this current uh, crisis. Now, here's a question from a member about ETFs. And much has been uh, talked about about ETFs, the pros and cons. We're going to get on to a bit more about that later. But in this current environment, this uh, member has a son who's got uh, a reasonable amount of money for uh, for a young man, I have to say. And he's looking to capitalize on the current situation with a short-term ETF, two to three years. Could, could you recommend a conservative ETF that uh, this gentleman's son should be considering? Uh, yes, ETFs are uh, great if they're if they're passive, if they do what they say on the box. So an ETF over the ASX two hundred, great. ETF over the ASX or over the S and P five hundred, great. Uh, an ETF on which does the inverse of the ASX two hundred, uh, you know, bear ETF, great. But the some ETFs have got active; they've started to uh, file into the latest marketing uh, hook, like give you a high yield or something like that. And these are very dangerous. I've seen the structure, looked at the structure of some of them, and it, and they're really quite horrendous, and you'll see that in the performance of some of them. So uh, stick to the passive ones. And the obvious one is the STW ETF over the ASX 200. Uh, but when you think about that, uh, that's uh, an ETF over the Australian market. Mm, US market's probably a bit sexier. So I would say maybe an unhedged version of the S&P 500 ETF combined with a, an ETF over the ASX 200. Those, those would be your two. ETFs are becoming very popular with millennials because millennials know they've got a, a 35, 40-year run-up on super and they don't want to be mucking about an individual stock, so they're putting the money in ETFs. So why not join them? Stick your 15 grand in there. Don't expect to be making money uh, in the short term out of that. Uh, I'd, I'd contribute that to your super so you can't get it out again but that, that would probably sort you out um, the market's supposed to go up close to 10 percent a year including uh, dividends if you've got that over the next 15 years 35 years you'd be doing very well that's um, that's sage advice for our younger members certainly uh, the greatest uh, force in the universe as we know is compound interest and that uh, that works very well for people that have time so our final question for Marcus, who's on the couch today, uh, comes from a member who's got quite a considerable amount in his Australian super in the balanced option. And unfortunately, he's down quite a significant six-figure sum. Um, and uh, he has been stood down from his current role. His question is, is it too late to go to cash? And are there many like him that are stuck in just industry funds like Aussie super? And uh, is there alternatives? Uh, the industry funds are absolutely fine. People, they advertise about the differences in costs and this sort of thing, but really much of them, are, um, many of them are the same. If you look in the back of the money magazine, the top 25 performing uh, big industry funds over the last 10 years have all performed pretty much in line with each other with a 1% or 2% difference per annum. It really doesn't matter. No one's uh, actively managing these things. They've become a big administrative platforms, if anything. Uh, so any of them will do. Uh, if you are in a big industry fund, you do these days uh, hopefully have the option to log in, go to the page which says click on here for your asset allocation, and you can click aggressive, uh, conservative, balanced, or you can click cash. Um, uh, it's no biggie. You you didn't be uh, – this is a new thing, uh, but it's a great 
great uh, structure for people uh, in Australian super. I would say uh, you'd be, uh, or what I would do is not a recommendation, but what I would do, I would be sitting in either fully aggressive or in cash. And I'd only be in cash occasionally, like times like this. But as you know, we've sold out, we've bought back in. At the moment, I'd be sitting in aggressive and uh, keep reading the newsletter for <laughs> for when, when we think it's time to go to cash again. Uh, but I would simply be sitting there on a Saturday chatting chatting with my family and going, I'm cash. Uh, I'm aggressive. I'm cash. I'm aggressive. It's no it's uh, no biggie. You might have to make one decision every 10 years as you have, have, have had this time. Uh, but at the moment, uh, we'd be aggressive again. Well, thank you, Marcus, for all those those wonderful thoughts to our 10 questions from, from our members. Switcheroo. Right, okay. And I'm, I've got a clock here, okay? Okay. And it well. says uh, counting down, and you're only allowed a minute because I only I, was, I answer most of mine in 30 seconds, I reckon. Yeah. Uh, we've got questions for Henry. Henry's questions are, are deliberately all about stocks because he's much better at that than me. I don't know how you do that ask an analyst thing, all that stuff you used to do on Sky Business where you have to answer questions about stocks with no notice. But there you go. Uh, let's give it a go again. Henry, uh, which bank would you be buying should the opportunity arise? And has the opportunity arised, Henry? I think with the banking sector, you have to go with strength. These are troubled times. Matt Common has done, I think, an exceptional job at Commonwealth Bank. It trades at a premium to the other three banks. It is X serious issues. It doesn't have a new CEO. It doesn't have an Oztrack investigation hanging over it. And these guys are the best in technology and have the strongest balance sheet probably of any bank in the world. So if you're going to buy a bank that has some security and really, really top-class management, then I would really suggest Commonwealth Bank is the only place to look. And at 60 bucks, interesting, interesting. I think uh, we could see them lower as well as we head towards bank results season and some nerves about those dividends, but uh, that would be top of my shopping list. I entirely concur with that. Uh, CBA has been the quality stock. It's always been a, a bit of a higher PE, and before it started to fall over, it was... So you're getting a $91 stock at the top for whatever the price is now, $60. Henry, the um, energy stocks. Uh, Marcus has talked about the oil stocks and clearly you stick with strength. But if you want to go leverage and you want to be more aggressive, then certainly Beach, Senex. Also maybe look at Cooper Energy as well, which has got a lot of exposure to uh, onshore gas. Santos is the interesting one. Its AGM was today, and it made a big point of pointing out its hedge position. It has 30% of its production hedged at around $43 a barrel. So uh, that is certainly a good position to be in, uh, and that is the one that has the most leverage in the big stocks, I suspect. Oh, here we go. Can you name me five top stocks that are now offering great value? Yes. Do you want me to actually Good. name them? Next question. Next question. <laughs> that, that was short and sweet. Um, actually, uh, on, uh, interestingly enough, on, on the 1st of April, uh, to coincide with April Fool's Day, um, I put in the newsletter in, in my thing a uh, the Corona six-pack of, of stocks, which I thought were aggressively geared to a uh, continuation of this rally. And they included uh, Macquarie Group, which obviously is uh, very geared to this, BHP, Clearly has got a great balance sheet, good management. Commonwealth Bank I had in there, Santos and Qantas as well, quality balance sheet and should outlast the opposition and aristocrat were my six stocks in the six-pack Corona basket, the Corona six-pack. 
Very good. And uh, I see, uh, was it Wilson's put out a, not Wilson Asset Management, Wilson the broker put out a list today, yeah. uh, similar sort of thing. Everyone's trying to put this portfolio together of stocks that will survive. Uh, they had Cochlear, uh, ResMed, Transurban, Zero. Zero is actually popping up, but a lot of people are recommending that. Amcor, BHP, same as Henry, Rio, Aristocrat Leisure, same as Henry, JB Hi-Fi, Wes Farmers, Woolworths, Magellan, Macquarie, same as Henry, CBA, same as Henry and Goodman Group. Anyway, plenty, plenty of people trying to build sensible portfolios. Next question. Retailers have been dumped, obvious candidates to buy in the gloom. Which ones do you think will be thriving next year? And the questioner had a couple of suggestions. JBH, VTG and SSG. Your thoughts, Henry? Shaver groups. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I would, it's, it's going to be, I think, a very r- different retail environment. I certainly think JB Hi-Fi will do well. They haven't been really good on the whole digital thing and the online thing. They've been a bit slow off the mark in that. They prefer to be physical. Um, I think this is going to force them to be digital and online, which is a good thing. I think clearly Kogan has a platform advantage there in terms of their online and their logistics business behind it. The other one that could be quite interesting is uh, LaVisa. I know it's uh, it's a fashion jewellery business for uh, teenagers, and of course they've had to close their stores. But if you're coming out of hibernation and you want to flaunt it, and when you're a kid and you want to buy something cheap, it's a bit like why nail places do quite well in recessions because it's just a little thing, but it cheers you up. And I think LaVisa's got that potential, got good management. It's got good footprint in terms of Australia, in the US and the UK as well. And it has been absolutely smacked so I would be looking at that one too, just as three that could uh, could do okay. I like the idea of shaver shop because we come come out of quarantine. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Bloody hairstyles and uh, the need for a shave is just ridiculous. I'm going to get the uh, dog clippers out. They should boom. Uh, thank, thankfully, we're on a podcast. Uh, Henry, what are your thoughts on ETFs generally? There you go. The, the principal ones? ETFs. I, I think the question actually was about uh, have ETFs caused half the problems? Did they fold up in this crisis? Yeah. They were expected to be a real problem. There, there was a lot of chatter in the market. And a lot of people were very skeptical because ETFs have grown out of all proportion, not, ju- not just so much in Australia, but um, in the US it's just been phenomenal. So what um, what we have seen with the ETF, well, there's the question mark of how they would perform in a crisis. And I think we've certainly seen a crisis of immense proportions at the moment. And they do seem to have performed relatively well. There's been few instances where some of the uh, the more esoteric US bond ETFs have traded at significant discounts to their NTAs. But generally, they have performed relatively well and have provided liquidity, which is what was the question mark. The issue becomes whether they have caused or exaggerated this sell-off. And I suspect there has been a little bit of that, as has margin uh, calls and also excessive leverage. But uh, I think ETFs certainly seem to have passed uh, this particular test at the moment, albeit at times under strain, with, uh, I wouldn't say flying colours, but uh, and as Marcus said earlier, the ones that have uh, probably done better are the passive ones rather than the active ones in terms of liquidity. And those are the ones that I would try and stick with in terms of getting in and getting out in these harsh times. So I think the answer is yes, they have performed okay. 
Okay, I, I uh, read a great article about this, which was the only issue with ETFs and instruments like this and technology is that if selling begets selling, in other words, when the market comes down, the market has to go down because the next day the instruments like ETFs are now selling underlying stocks in order to match the selling. So you get selling begets selling. And I, I reckon from the speed of this correction, there must have been a big element of that. There must have been, in which case the ETFs might, in hindsight, be proven to be a large part of why this happened so quickly, and in, which is good because in the, on the way back up, uh, they'll, they'll do the same thing, I suppose. I think, I think we also saw that to a certain extent. When we had that disastrous end to, uh, what was it, Christmas 2000, 2018, before we saw Federal Reserve Chief Powell reverse all engines, we saw that horrible fall from our anchor. It was around August in 2018 to December 2018 when the market cratered. I think that was a prelude and maybe a dress rehearsal for the effect of those ETFs because there did seem to be lots of of uh, volatility caused by that and lots of pressure on the market by that. So certainly it does play a part in the uh, in the market gyrations. But as far as getting in and getting out in liquidity terms, I think they have passed the test. Yeah, they probably have. Right, next question, Henry. I'd like to lock 50% of my portfolio away in a secure group of stocks with 10% dividend yields. Is that possible? Where should I look? Wouldn't we all? Is the answer? Yeah, a couple of ways I answer that is to say that I can guarantee you a 50% yield. If you give me a dollar, I guarantee you a 50% yield. You'll get that for two years. After that, your money will be gone. <laughs> or, or you so, can just uh, there's, a Ponzi scheme. There's a saying in the stock market, anything yields over 10% doesn't. At the moment, the banks are supposed to be yielding 12, 13, 14% on the, on the current forecast, but uh, we'll see in the next results season, they probably all get cut. But still, the yields will be fairly high. The obvious thing from this price after this correction is maybe the banks will get you halfway there. And, and, and that's where you probably would be looking. Next question, Henry. Have robots taken over the asylum? Uh, we've already talked a bit about this in ETFs. Or is this volatility human manipulation of the market? I don't think any human can work as fast as this market does at the moment. From my time in uh, banks like Macquarie, um, we were experimenting with AI back in the 90s and uh, automated trading systems, and they have just got better and better. And you can see that they actually, in the US, they pick up on, on tweets, especially I would imagine that they're very geared up to reading Mr. Trump's tweet. 60 probably to 70 percent of the market is transacted by computer programs and it wouldn't be as high in australia but certainly uh, technology has become a massive part of the market yeah and uh next question or this penultimate question when does all this end henry in terms of the market the, the thing that i've i've been focusing on and i've written about this in the newsletter is and it's a bit weird and I am a bit weird let's face it um, but it was the it's the battle of midway which took place in 1942 now the US market actually bottomed during the battle of midway but it wasn't as if the war was over it took another 3 years for victory in Europe and victory in Japan so we do anticipate yeah the stock market's going to anticipate the first sign that we're going to get over this rather than it continue endlessly and the stock market's going to start responding very quickly i think uh, lastly henry when this all ends yeah. what's changed in the world 
I think the cruise business has changed. <laughs> I think that <laughs> shouldn't laugh. That, I think worry. that's stuffed. I think there is a, a lot of uh, things that will change. I think there's a lot of assumptions that we have made in the past that will change in terms of uh, dividends, forecast, guidance. It will be a different world for retail. It will be a different world for the banks because they will have to uh, cope with bad debts for some time to come as we nurse a population back to financial health. And I think you know, we are going to be saddled as a nation with a massive, massive debt uh, because of this. And at some stage, we have to pay back that debt. It is it is blown through the roof. Uh, the same elsewhere. Ours is far better off than many countries. But there is a danger that we become a bit zombified like Japan and end up with zero rates and zero growth uh, and stagflation. I think that's that's potential risk but it will be a very different world that we emerge from we will be less less confident i guess about the future and more worried about uh things that didn't worry us three months ago yeah the the it it all depends on how long it takes for confidence to return if it can return quickly then the uh, government balance sheet damage won't be as bad the debts won't be as bad the bad debts for banks won't be as bad the retail will get back on its feet because consumers still have money it's all a question of duration one of the things i think will change is offices people have got used to the technology it's been around for years but we're now being forced to use it and for some people i think it's uh, working some of these service industries are probably going to be better off with people working more productively at the times they want in the environment they want so i would be a uh, if i was holding a commercial office property i'd be thinking to myself damn i missed the top for decades because some of us just may not want to get back to work with each other henry you know what i mean well i i I do agree with you marcus on that front but as someone that has been doing this for the last five years i do find that you do need to go somewhere and have a separation so that you actually leave and you don't have the dog barking in the background and you do have that communal interaction um, rather than just the dog. So um, I, th- I think you're right. I think we will embrace the technology of, of off-site working far more, um, but I think there's still a need for communal congregation. I think that's, that's a, it's a basic human need. Yeah, I think, I think it's that. The, the other thing, Henry, is the travel. You know, oh, yeah, you know, God, the time people we're waste. Getting, we're getting an extra hour at work. The Great. time people waste on, on commuting. My, my wife, who's been working from home, she travels an hour in and an hour out. She's now got two hours more to do more productive things. Not sure what she's go. doing with them. <laughs> <laughs> right, good. So, well, that's it. That's 20 questions, Marcus. We've, we've got through our first one. Now, I hope that everybody finds this useful. Um, you can email me uh, questions on henry at marcustoday.com.au, as you know, uh, and we'll get back to you as quickly as possible. And who knows, you might get one of your questions in our podcast. It's been a lot of fun, I've got to say. Um, so tell your friends. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Marcus, for being part of the On the Couch with Henry. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Henry.